You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. Colossians 3.17 says this, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to Him through God the Father. There's a, the verse right before that talks about how to do that. But it's not necessarily an exhaustive list. So um, where you see Sam and Hannah and, and then Michelle and, and Rachel share their talents and what God has done through them, it's, it's a good thing that they've decided that it's okay to honor the Lord with that in this place. And so it is an encouragement to them to, to see, that, see that through and have the opportunity to do that in your midst. And, uh, and um, there's lots of ways that we can praise the Lord. I, I don't know um, how you do it. Some of you chop wood. I knew I had a friend that said, I'm going home and I'm going to make sawdust. And, and it was just his time with God. And, and so there's lots of ways that we can express our love for God in the way we do things. And so it can be on a baseball field. It can be in a dance studio. It can be in a sanctuary. The, the, the question is, where is the heart? And what is the heart sharing with God? See, this time in here and is not about you. We can just stop now, right? It's really not. It's not about me either, for that matter. It's really about God. And the question is, is God pleased with what happens in this place? That's the question. So whether you're pleased or not is irrelevant. To bust your bubble in thinking that, hey, I need to be fed or I need to be fixed or I need to, be, I need to get something. This is really about God. And the question is, are we subject to what God wants for us? That's the real question. Because he's really the audience, isn't he? If he's here and present, he's looking at you, he's going, okay, how are you as an individual in this place going to please me, going to worship me, going to relate to me? That's really the bottom line of why we gather. We get encouragement, and, and sometimes we get our toes stepped on, and sometimes it takes us down some paths that we don't necessarily enjoy. But what is God doing in you? What is God doing with you and in your life? You know, if, if we look at Scripture, understand that God is working out a plan. It's a plan that we may not exactly understand. And so we're going to get into something and we're going to move fast. So, and I would encourage you to take notes. So get, get out the fastest pen that you have. Don't use pencil. Just use pen because it moves faster than pencil. Pencil has some kind of um, uh, friction to it that, that pens don't have. So use a pen. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to be in um, the book of Titus, Paul's letter to Titus. And, it, and we're going to move through this because there's a lot to cover in this today. And so we're going to look at Titus chapter 1, just verses 1 through 4. 
Now, the, the letter was written to Titus from Paul. It's a, what's considered a pastoral letter. It was written, and there's some disagreement about when it was written, but essentially between 62 and 67 A.D. So if you do the math, it's, it's about 30 years, say approximately 30 years after the resurrection. And so the question is, if the church starts, or at least the account of the church as we read it in Acts in, in the beginning of the book of Acts, if we read that and say, that's kind of the beginning of the church, what happened to the church from that time to the point at which Paul writes this letter to Titus? What's going on in, in that? And so we, we know this. We know that there was tremendous growth. We, we see accounts of that in the church in general. Tremendous growth. There were doctrinal controversies in that. And, and it's where they chose deacons, that was part of it, and, and talked about elders and leadership. And then, and then they dealt with just the difficulties of, of different things, and maybe they appointed committees or ministry teams. Maybe they argued over carpet, or maybe not. So they may have argued over carpet or, or something else. They may have even had the, had the um, audacity to ask this question. We're reaching a bunch of children. Who's going to clean up after those kids? And you've heard all those, all those things happen in church. It's one of the reasons when, when you come in here, and I don't know if there's a sign or not. Obviously, I don't pay attention to it if there is. Um, but the whole idea of bringing coffee into the worship center. It's a stain. You've been cleaned from all your stains. Why not have a sanctuary stain, right? It's not going to really matter in the scope of eternity. It matters for David as he cleans up on Monday, or Rachel as she cleans up, or Raquel as she cleans up on Monday. That's where it matters. But in the scope of eternity, maybe not. And they were dealing with similar struggles that that we deal with, addressing a culture that is diametrically opposed to the gospel, a culture that says there is no God, there is no one way of salvation. There's a ton of different ways. And we know if we look at Scripture that that is not true. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. The disunity within the church. Look at the book of, of Corinthians, the letters to, to Corinth. There are some issues that Paul addressed. And there was pride and, and some self-serving constructs in this that are, it's really hard to deny if you read the New Testament. You go, the New Testament church, as much as we say, we want to be a New Testament church, we want to go back to the way it was. I look at the New Testament and I read through and I go, it's awful. And they got no clue. We've, we've got this book that was written to us and we get the whole text. They didn't have this. Broadman, Holman, Moody, all the, all the publishers that are out there, they weren't around. And so what did they do? They, they used word of mouth. They used transcripts of pieces to put together things and still wrestle with the, some of the same things that we wrestle with. And so when Paul writes this, pastoral letter to Titus, he's addressing some things that, that are going on 30 years removed from the resurrection. 
And when he writes, he's writing to Titus, who he had left in Crete. And while, while Titus is there, Paul writes this letter to help him in the organization and the leadership of the church. And why Titus? Titus was a trusted friend. Titus had accompanied Paul in several different places. Paul came through Crete with Titus, left Titus there to continue the work on that island. And so we know that he was trusted, he was faithful. In fact, he's the one that did some delivering of letters to the church at Corinth. And if we know that, we know that the letters to Corinth were tough letters. They were letters where Paul just kind of laid it out and said, I'm uncovering this junk that you've got in the church and you've got to deal with it. And Titus was there to deliver it and then help them to see what needed to be corrected. And so Titus is a trusted friend and a faithful servant alongside of Paul. And when Paul writes this, he's got in mind that the church in Crete has got to grow and has to grow up. And so Paul's expecting some things. And I would say that the, the letter to Titus is a letter to us. Because we get to apply these things. And so I, wanted to say, I don't want to say or get to the point where you say, hey, Paul wrote to Titus, it was for Crete, and it's really just one of those things we kind of gloss over and learn from and move on. No, it's a, it's a letter that we need to wrestle with. And so that's what we're going to do. For several weeks, we're going to look at this book and we're going to wrestle with it. And you know what wrestling entails, right? It means that you've got to stretch. It means that it's going to hurt. It means somebody's going to put their elbow in your ear and it may be your wife or your husband. And mostly because they want to get your attention. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak us and move in us and change us so that we will be what God wants us to be. If it doesn't accomplish anything, it's just another meeting that we work through a sermon series and we're done, then we've missed the point of what God wants to do in our midst. It means that we didn't have listening ears, that we need to get the wax out so that God can do the work that He wants to do. And so we're going to pray in just a moment, but I want to talk about the goals of this very quickly, the, there are two goals, essentially, that I think Paul has for Titus, but in essence has for the church in Crete, as he's sharing with this young pastor. The first one is that we live in the grace of God. And so the, the title of this, of this series is Living Grace, and you can read that any way you want to because it's okay. It's meant to be like that. We are to be living in the grace of God. It's a living grace affirmed through godly living. The second thing is that we are to live out the grace of God. So we live in the grace of God, but we live out the grace of God. Living out the grace of God means that it is effectual for the influence in our community and in the places that we go. That it works in our marketplace. And so we live in the grace of God and live out the grace of God. I want to tell you a little bit of how this works. I want to show you a picture in just a moment. But I want to describe this to you very quickly. Um, there was a guy that I met several years ago in Brazil. And I did not know him before I went there. And so, oh, that screen's doing weird things. Um, it's not going to show, is it? 
Vaughn, is that picture going to, there it is. Okay, good. All right, this is, this is Wesley. So, so the deal is, um, I went to Brazil, didn't know Wesley, but Wesley seemed to know everybody. And um, we could carry sort of a conversation on with Wesley, but his, his primary language was Portuguese. And so when somebody knows Portuguese and you know English, and then you know enough Spanish to be dangerous, then, then it's, a, it's a weird mix. Well, what I found out from Wesley is that he had a heart for sharing the gospel with everybody. And so while we were there, he had a little pickup. He bought a sound system. And it's normal in Brazil to put a sound system in the back of your pickup. And when I'm talking about a sound system, it's not like a speaker. It's like a sound system in the back of your truck. Like it fills the bed. And the idea is that you can ride through the streets and share political announcements. That's what they use it for. Wesley took his truck, put a sound system in it so that he could share the gospel from the back of his pickup. And it was loud. It was awesome. I'm thinking about it. Not quite there yet. But Wesley would do that. Wesley knew everybody. So we would go from town to town and Wesley would arrange for us to meet the mayor or the town's leader everywhere we went. And he said, this is what I want you to do because I, I really believe that if we influence the leadership of that particular town, then we can influence the whole town because there's tons of corruption in these small towns in Brazil. So we're going to go and I'm going to set you up with all these leaders. And so we did. We went from town to town and I sat in mayor's offices. I sat on porches of leaders in, in each of those cities and got to share the gospel. Took a long time and they sat there for the whole thing because when you share the gospel in English and it has to be translated to Portuguese, it takes a while. But I never got kicked out. Wesley had a heart for the gospel and he had a heart for people knowing the gospel and what it is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it was an awesome experience. And I realized that I couldn't do it without him. And essentially, he was counting on me going down there uh, along, with another, uh, along with the rest of the team to go and make an impact in these small towns. And so there was a common faith between Wesley and I, even though we didn't share the same language. There was a common faith. And what Paul does with Titus, he says, I have a heart for the gospel. And Titus, I know you have a heart for the gospel. And you need to reach the people of Crete with it. Set up leadership in, with the idea that it will change a whole island for the gospel and for the glory of God. That's why Paul wrote it. And we're not that much different than, than Paul or Titus in this. The question, do we have a heart for the gospel and do we want to see it go out? And so we're going to read Titus Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Would you stand as we read this together? Titus 1, 1 through 4. It says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time, manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, 
grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we've heard from Paul to Titus, that God, you would not have our ears be dull this morning, but you would perk them up. That we would hear what we need to hear. That it would be more your voice than any voice. God, that you would hide me behind the cross and allow the glory of who you are come through. Father, may you be glorified in this place, honored in this location this morning. Father, we love you. We desire, we hope, I hope we desire what you desire. And so, Father, work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we, as we look at Titus 1, there are four questions that I want us to deal with this morning. This is why I said you're going to have to listen fast. The first one is, what is a common faith? Paul says that Titus had a common faith with him. So what's a common faith? What does it mean to be chosen of God? And so we're going to get into some things that this is where you're going to have to listen fast. What does it mean to be chosen? Scripture does not avoid that word. Okay, so what does it mean to be chosen of God? How are truth and godliness connected? And we'll leave the last question. How would you describe your relationship your relationship to God. How would you describe that? So we'll kind of, growing up, we'll kind of save that. It, it could happen again. Who knows? So what is a common faith? What's a common faith? So he writes, it, he says, Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. What does it mean to have a common faith? Well, this is different than what Paul grew up with. The word here is, is koinos. And it's a word that essentially just means common. It's ordinary. There's nothing special about it compared to what Paul was used to. In, and you have to understand the history of Israel is, is that they were always known as a chosen people. So when Paul writes this as a common faith, he's understanding that although God says it has a chosen people, there is also a common faith. And Titus, as a Greek leader, needed to understand that he and Paul were on the same ground with regards to God. They come to the cross in the same way. It wasn't Paul, the Jewish special guy. And for us, it's not this person. They have lots of money in their bank account or they hold this position at their job. It was a common faith that we all have. I want you to think about this, and don't think long because then you'll start getting some hunger pains. But you think about the, the, the typical Baptist buffet, or as we call it, a church supper, covered dish, right? There are not multiple lines for different classes of people, are there? No, it's one line, right? Everybody goes through the same line. You get the same green beans, you get the same mystery casserole, all that stuff. We're in the same place. We all, have, we all have needs. We all stand unworthy in our own merit before God. Every single one of us. So when Paul writes about a common faith, Paul is, ha, has an understanding of this. 
in Romans 3, 9, all the way through verse 18, it says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. There is none righteous. As is written, there is none righteous. No, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throats, their, or their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness? Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is not encouraging. Now we, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Understand that and what Paul's saying here in, to the Romans is that I understand there is Jew and there is Greek and you can throw in all the other ones you want to, but we all stand in the same place, condemned under sin apart from Christ. It's the way it is. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16 talks about what we were before as we formerly were, for now been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity or that, that stripe, that, that budding together, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having it by it having put to death the enmity. So it's, it's like God taking this strife that's, that's there and saying, because of grace and because of the cross, under Christ, we are together. So it really doesn't matter what race you are. It really doesn't matter your socio, socioeconomic level. When we are under Christ, we are together. And when we fight... We do not honor God. When we are not unified, we do not honor God. They said, when we have carpet arguments, we don't honor God. So, how are we doing? Paul talks about this common faith with Titus. And the idea is that God has a plan. There's an understanding for Paul and for Titus that God is doing a work. Max Licato said this, he said, you cannot be anything you want to be, which is just the opposite of what the world tells you, right? And we've been saying that for years. I've told my kids that you can be anything you want to be. Do whatever you want to do. Essentially, I was wrong. I guess the bottom line, I can be everything that God wants me to be. And that's what Lucado says, but you can be everything God wants you to be. It's not about you. It's about submitting to the will of God under the cross of Christ in a common faith. So the first thing we need to understand is there is no privilege 
with God's invitation. Number one, there is no privilege with God's invitation. So who is invited to a relationship with God? Who is it that can come? See, an honest reading of the New Testament, and listen to, you're going to have to listen and write at the same time, but listen very carefully. An honest reading of the New Testament presents some difficulties with a question like, who is invited? Because there are scripture passages that, that kind of can throw us off and push us in a direction, in one of two directions. Paul wrote in the tension. He discussed with, with Titus, but he wrote from, from the point of view of God's invitation to forgiveness, to peace with Him, freedom from the penalty of sin, and assurance of salvation. Paul understood that if he lived within the tension then it would make sense. And we have to understand that when Paul writes, because he seems to write different things in different ways, even to the same audience. And so as he writes it, we have to ask Paul, are you wrong here and right here? Or are you wrong here and right over here? And the answer is you're right in both places. There is a tension that exists when we start looking at Scripture in an honest way. And it's a hard tension. And I understand that. So when Paul writes this, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, which is the Greek word electos, which makes us really uncomfortable when we start talking about election and predestination. Okay, nobody's throwing anything. That's good. So... Faith of those chosen of God and knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So what does it mean to be chosen of God? What does it mean to be elect? Well, there, there are several different terms that I want to throw out here, and, and we'll, get to, we'll get to some descriptions in just a second. But the, there are two, two things at odds here. Election, choosing, election, as, as opposed to this idea of reprobation. And, and you know, I don't even know what that word means. Essentially, God chooses some and He purposely does not choose others. He destines some for heaven, destines some for hell. Those are the two, two camps, the far end spectrums of this thing. And we've got to figure out where we're at. And so we ask questions. And they're good questions. We ask questions like, like, did God create people to go to hell? You've heard that question. Because if so, doesn't that make him a cruel, uncaring God? Doesn't that mean that he doesn't really care about people? He just has his pick. So the tension exists when we read passages like this. Romans 8 29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Then in Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, says, In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us, in the beloved, which is Jesus. And then Romans 10, 13, which got to figure this out. So for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
So how do you reconcile those things together? How do you make sense of it? And Robertson McQuilkin said this, and I've quoted him before. I'm going to say it again, and you'll probably hear it at least one more time as we look through Titus. He wrote, It is easier to go to a consistent extreme than to stay at the center of biblical tension. See, there are some things in Scripture that we have to understand that are not as clear as we would like them to be. They're just not. And, And it's one of the reasons that Scripture often uses the term mystery. There are some things that because we are not God, we don't understand. Scripture, these are the things we do understand. Scripture is unified. There's no disagreement between one passage of Scripture and another passage of Scripture. There is a consistent message in Scripture. The story of God's pursuit of His creation for His glory. That's common throughout. And we wrestle with this idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. What is God sovereign over and what, is, what does man have free will in? And so we're going to look at, very quickly, two approaches to this whole idea of election, atonement, grace, and the security of the believer. And so we're going to look at these, Calvin's view and Arminius' view, or the Arminian view. And we're going to put them, you're not going to see it on the screen, but we're going to talk about both sides of this equation and then understand where we're at in this. Because it's not, it, we can't put it on a scale. It's not, that, it's not that there are completely definitive ideas in this. So I want to look through it really quick so that we can have an understanding of where we land as far as our thoughts on, the, on these things, and then some principles that help us just move forward. So the first one is Calvin. And so there, there are the opposing views. Okay, so Calvin has, talks, the acrostic is tulip for Arminius. The, um, the par- palindrome is do God. And so we go through total depravity versus deprived ability. And so let's talk about that. Total depravity means that no one is free to believe in God. You're chosen to believe in God. You don't have a free will in that at all. And then deprived ability is a deprived state, but not powerless in choosing God. And so they say, well, where do we land on that? We have to ask ourselves a question. Do we have any choice in responding to God? Or do we have no choice? So that's the first one. You go, well, I'm I'm landing on one side. Hold on. Second one is unconditional election. That God elects people to salvation despite unworthiness. So we're okay with that part, right? Not by foreknowledge, but by His free will. And so that would be unconditional election. Open election is determined by the faith of the individual. So we can respond to to this, and it's us responding to God. The third thing is limited atonement. That Jesus died only for the elect. He did not die for the whole world, but only those predestined to election. Arminius' view of that is Jesus died for the sins of the whole world and not just the elect. You go, wait a minute. How does that work? 
We'll, we'll come back to that. So just, just hang on that one for a little bit. Third, fourth one, irresistible grace, whom God elects will come to salvation in the end. That God's grace is efficient and effective. The elect will succumb to grace. And so that's, you don't have a choice. You're going to get saved. You can run all kinds of different directions, but by the time you die, you're going to get saved. That would be irresistible grace. Opposable grace is that people can resist God's grace, turn from God's grace, and disbelieve the message of the gospel. And we'd say, okay, we land there. We see people push away the gospel. But the question is, will they eventually come to the gospel and is God going to make them? And then the last one is perseverance of the saints, that the elect will continue in their faith. They can't lose their salvation. And for Arminius, the danger of apostasy, which means that believers can fall away from their state of grace and can reach the point of no possibility of restoration. You're going, whoa, I don't, I don't believe that. And so there are some things you would say, if I, if I really take inventory of me, I land on Calvin's side for some of it, and I land on Arminius's side for some other pieces. And so when we talk about it, it's really hard to rate what's going on here. And so we end up with questions regarding this, and we're not going to solve it all this morning. This is, this is like four hours worth of stuff we could get into. But we ask questions like this. What is, is the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection, and can it accomplish salvation? Is it sufficient for grace, for salvation? So that would be, that would be a question. The second question, what is the effectiveness of Christ's death and resurrection? Or what are the results See, if you, if you land in one spot where you talk about um, opposable grace, let's just, let's just take that for instance, um, or, or limited atonement, that, that Jesus died for a limited number of people as opposed to Jesus died for everybody. If Jesus is, took on the sins of the whole world at that spot, then we ask the question, why wouldn't the whole world be saved? Because all the sin's there, Right? So how does God choose which sin went there and which sin didn't? And did Jesus take on the sin of the whole world, but some of it just doesn't apply? And so we get into all kinds of, all kinds of discussion with this because it gets a little complicated. Because if you, if you land on Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, and, and I know this is complicated, but if all the sin was on him and it applies then it sounds like universalism where everybody gets to go to heaven, doesn't it? And so how do we make the determination between those chosen of God, those elect and not elect? And so you, if you take it to extremes, you can, end up, you can end up in trouble. You can be doctrinally off. And so we, ask, we could ask a question like that or... But if we look at Scripture and say, although I may not understand how God does it, I don't, I don't really know what God knows. I don't really know how much He looks ahead and sees or how much He looks behind and sees and how that all fits together. I do know that it's a mystery. 
and we accept it by faith and we trust God that God has saved us and we can respond to Him. And where that falls in these camps, how exactly it falls in these camps, I'm not going to sweat it. Don't call me a Calvinist and don't call me an Arminian, Arminianist. Arminian, maybe just Arminian. Don't call me either one of them because I'm going to land in between on some of those things because I, I don't see Scripture teaching one side or the other of either one of those camps. Ephesians 6.19 says this, and pray on my behalf, Paul's talking, he says, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the boldness, with boldness, the mystery of the gospel. There's some things that we're not going to understand, but here's some things that we do understand. All right, so here's the list. Here's some truths. First one, God is holy and sovereign. God is holy and sovereign, and God has a free will. He's got a free will. And sometimes we look at it the opposite. We want free will, but we want God to be boxed in. God has a free will. Second thing, God is unchanging. God doesn't change. He doesn't blow with the wind like some of us in the way we think or believe or, or, or exist or live our life. God is unchanging. God is love. He loves and is a righteous judge. And catch that. It's both sides of an equation. We hear a lot about if God loved. Yeah, God loves, but God is also judge. And he must judge sin. Sin gets in the way of our relationship with God. And if we take that out of the equation, hey, everybody's good, right? But God is a righteous judge. And being a righteous, holy judge means that he cannot be in the presence of sin. Or sin can't be in his presence. Fourth thing, God provides for my salvation. God is a God of mercy. And doesn't give me what I deserve. He gives me way, way better. And when I trusted him in 1980 with my life, I felt like God was calling me to himself and convicting me of sin. When I responded, I received the mercy of God and a living grace. Fifth thing, God promises certainty and security. 1 John 5.13 says, I, I write these things, you may know that you have eternal life. That doesn't sound like a guessing game. I, you, I hope that you have eternal life. No, that's not where it's at. He promises security. He's placed in us His Holy Spirit as a deposit in us. And He secured us. As much as uh, we can't save ourselves, we can't lose the salvation that God has secured. There's some things that I can't unlock because God has locked it. And he's locked my salvation for eternity through Christ. The last one is I can trust God even if I don't understand. God is trustworthy. And so therefore, we know these things. We can be saved for now and eternity. That Jesus is the only conduit to the Father. It's the John 14, 6 Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and, and no man comes to the Father except through me. He is the conduit. He is the only way. The third thing is that believers can contend for or share the gospel with confidence. 
It's not up to us. It's up to God to bring somebody to Christ. It's our commission to take the gospel to our marketplace. That's the Matthew 28 thing, right? As you go, make disciples. That's our commission. That's what we are called to do. Michael Bird said in evangel- evangelical theology, he says, God's instrument to bring the elect into salvation is the proclamation of the gospel by the church. So Paul's heart beats for the surrendered bride of Christ that would live as individuals called by him and in collective unity to God's glory. That's what we're called to. Deb's reading a book and and she sent me this quote by text yesterday. It was like, that sounds really good. Aaron Coe wrote this. He said, what would cause a person to risk his or life for the mission? And he answered it, it. It is an unwavering belief in the God of the mission. She doesn't center whether we understand Calvin or we understand Arminius or we land somewhere in between. The question is, do we believe God? Do we believe His Word? Is it a trustworthy thing? See, we are commissioned by God as chosen through an uncommon faith to live uncommonly. And so the second thing we have to understand is there is no person beyond the scope of God's reach. There's no person beyond the scope of God's reach. And although Jesus' hands were nailed to a cross, His arms reached to us. His hand reached to the thief on one side and said, today you will be with me in paradise. Third question, how are truth and godliness connected? And in this passage, Paul writes, faith of chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago but at the proper time manifested even His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the command of God our Savior. Truth by definition is truth in any matter. Webster says this, and I was good with Webster to a point, said the truth is the body of real things, events, and facts. I'm good. The state of being the case. It's a fact. And then, then Webster put this in, says, a judgment, proposition, or idea that is true or accepted as true. I don't know about you, but I've got an issue with that. Because if all of us collectively in this room said, we really believe that the carpet is purple, and we decided that that's what we believed, would it be true? It would not. But we would believe it. Sincerely believe it. It's not about sincerity of belief. It's about truth. And truth does not change with the wind of culture, nor is it defined by culture. It's different than this thought. God said it. I believe it. And that settles it. You've seen it. You know that's not true, right? God said it, that settled it. It doesn't really matter whether you believe it or not. Truth is not contingent on my belief or my feelings. 
If it were, then those mornings where I get up and I have, well, my, my hair is wild every morning, but if I woke up and just had a crazy, weird, wild hair day and looked in the mirror and said, I don't feel very saved. And there are days when I get up and I'm a little irritated about something, whether it was a dream or, or pizza, you know, it really doesn't matter. If I wake up and don't feel saved, my salvation is not based on my feelings. The truth did not change while I slept. Believers, by, ne- by definition, claim to honor the truth of God's Word. That's where we should be. But the reality of our application may define us more, as like Craig Rochelle says, practical atheists. We take the truth of God's Word and make it relative. See, if godliness is going to be part of our life, then we are subject to the truth of God. And that means a couple of different things. It means that we are convicted of sin. We need to be repentant from sin or turn the opposite direction. And we need to be surrendered to God. And let that define our godliness. So is God trustworthy? Paul says, is it inspired by the Holy Spirit, that yes, God is trustworthy. It says he cannot lie. The Greek word comes out of the word pseudo or fake. And you know this. If you drink sweet tea, there is no legitimate substitute for real sugar. Right? I drink stuff with fake sugar all the time. It's not the same. There are some things that cannot be substituted. Just like there is no negotiation about God's truth. So that's the third piece. There's no negotiation about God's truth. And so Paul in this in the beginning part of this letter, is setting the stage, a stable foundation from which to share with Pastor Titus some incredible principles of the church. For us, we have to ask ourselves, what drives an uncommon life if we are going to live out grace? If we truly believe that God is present, then what difference does it make? And so the fourth question this morning is probably the most critical question. Is how would you describe your relationship to God? Are you counted among the chosen? Do you have a common faith? Do you sense God indicating to you that you are really maybe on the outside looking in? Where are you in your relationship with God? Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.